0: Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi, everybody. My name is Benu Gopal Madhipati. I'm an architectural historian and I teach and write in Delhi. I'm particularly interested in themes related to housing, ecological aesthetics and law. And today I'm going to speak with Dr. Hakim Sameer Hamadani, who is the uh, design director of the Indian National Trust for Art and Cultural Heritage, INTAC, the Kashmir chapter in Srinagar. And Dr. Hamadani, or Hakim, as I've known him from the time he was my senior at the School of Planning and Architecture in Delhi in the late 90s, is a renowned architectural historian and Islamicist who's recently published a fascinating book, which is titled. The Syncretic Traditions of Islamic Religious Architecture in Kashmir. Now, Hakim is also soon to embark on an Aga Khan postdoctoral fellowship in the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is MIT, where he'll be carrying forward his work on Muslim architecture and Muslim identity in late 19th and early 20th century Kashmir in the background of colonialism and the freedom struggle. Now, Hakim's book, which is the subject of discussion today, is extensive. It traces the emergence of Islamic and Islamicate architecture in Kashmir, beginning with the B-scaled mosques in the time of Rinchana, through the arrival of the kubravi Sufis and the emergence of Khankas along the Jhelum waterfront, through the emergence of octagonal mausoleum, the emergence of Persianate influences such as the Ivan mosques the cave architecture of the Rishis of Kashmir, Imam Baras, the list is endless. So this is a really richly detailed book which captures nearly 500 years of Kashmiri architectural history, not to mention the portions of the book that actually draw attention to the pre-Islamic period of the region, and also to a trans-regional history spanning as far south as the Delhi Sultanate and as far northwest as Kiva and Nishwahan. So somewhat in keeping with the breadth and depth of the book, I have a few questions. Uh, But I think we'll start with a a more straightforward, uh, uh, a simple question, which might actually lead to um, Hakim's uh, more detailed observations about the contents of this uh, extraordinary book. So I'll start by saying, Hakim, um, could you tell us something about how you understand, at a very simple level, the task of architectural history writing? And it's and I'm asking this because architectural history is, you know, for the most part, a relatively obscure profession, right? It's it's not something that's really considered to be the mainstream, right? And how is it that you arrive at this this craft of architectural history writing, and what inspired you to actually take this up? So if you could just start by telling us something about that, and maybe we can take that forward uh, with more questions. Over to you, Hakan.
1: Thank you, Venu. Firstly, thanks for having me. Uh, honored to be here with you. I think the last time we actually physically met, it was altogether a different century in many ways. But anyway, it's nice meeting with you again. And regarding the whole idea about architecture and architectural history, where does it fit in? Because generally our whole uh, understanding of history is of a socio-cultural history, textual, mostly derived from the text as it is. And then you have the sort of the preponderance of the aligarh school and where, and I would assume, and their Marxist thought uh, architecture as a is on the sidelines of the history. It's not; it's on the margins rather than the main uh, uh, main understanding of what is happening in terms of our history. So personally, I would always think I think that. Uh, it's high time that we think about architecture as not only sort of something that uh, helps us in understanding history but as a major tool with which to revisit history it basically the textual references that we have the texts that we have i mean it is uh, a understanding of history wherein we can actually go back to these periods and say these are the buildings and there is something that the building is telling us how much true and how much uh, does it sort of, uh, how much is the text that we are reading in conformity with the actual footprints of these cultures as they are there. So I would think that it is high time that at least in South Asia, uh, architecture is not relegated to the margins of history, the cultural history. It becomes not a, one of the tools of understanding history, but it is a medium of contesting some of the textual understandings that we have of the past.
0: Amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's that's really, that's at the heart of the question, right? That, I mean, we're always sort of, uh, with architectural history, we seem to be catching up with textual histories and somehow trying to uh, re- reinforce or corroborate textual histories. But instead of that, what happens when you actually put, you know, material culture at the center, right? Or, or not necessarily at the center, but at par with other resources and other forms of knowledge. And that produces... Uh, a more complete picture one would imagine. So I think to that extent, I think one part of the whole idea of architectural history would probably be thinking in terms of something like a completeness of, of trying to think beyond simply textual sources without, of course, discounting textual sources, because I think that also comes through very well in your work that you do you know, take them very seriously. And, you know, so, the, so you keep moving between these different sources. So I think in continuing with this line of questioning, then I would ask you, again, a very, very broad based question, how would you uh, draw together religion and architectural history? And, and you can speak specifically in the context of Kashmir. Uh, you know, uh, where do you think like that, true? I mean, how did you come around to that question? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, so again, going back to this whole idea of text, so mostly in Kashmir, the text, I mean, the period I'm dealing it, it starts with the sort of the medieval period, which is around 14th century. And the earliest texts we have, the textual references that we have is around 15th century, or even the more popular ones in Persian are from 17th century, even if not later. So the question is, here in 17th century, there are historians, there are sort of hagiographical geographical uh, writers who are basically trying to re-establish a starting point for Muslim rule in Kashmir. And Mm while they're writing, they're carrying all the prejudices and the biases of a 17th century uh, Kashmir Mm -hmm. and projecting it backwards onto a 14th or 13th century Kashmir as it is. Mm -hmm. So once you come to the actual material culture, and again, architecture is one of the biggest and the greatest manifestation of that material culture, it is there, it is solidly there in your front of your eyes, you can see actually, and that is a part of the book that how much of a disconnect there is between histories that were written in 17th century and the actual footprints of architecture that were there, that are there dating back from 14th century itself. So the whole idea in 17th century, when you imagine this as the Islamic movement, the Muslim movement, the sort of the inauguration of a new religion and a religious polity in the area mm-hmm. is actually contradicted by every evidence that comes from the architecture of the area and the architecture is more as the whole topic of the book is, and the thesis of the book is, it's more about gelling in, it's not Mm -hmm. like you're introducing an altogether different religious phenomenon. And then there is a sort of a clash, it's not about clash out here, it's a sort of a continuity and trying to sort of fit in with an existing culture. And then there are these sort of curious and interesting examples that come up of it. And architecture is uh, one of the examples that use it. So again, I'd say that Religion in 14th century Kashmir is something totally different than religion as it was imagined in 17th century or later down even in 19th, 20th century when mm-hmm. our modern historians and with their sort of that uh, notion of a divide, clear-cut divide between a Hindu period and the Muslim period and that mm. sort of the colonial uh, hangover that we had and then they are reimagining a past. So there mm. is this interesting historian from the 20th century. He writes about the fact that When we have the first uh, Muslim king ascending the throne, and he's a convert, he's not someone who comes from, who's not a Muslim invader as it is, and he imagines him as being something of a uh, Muslim theocracy. I mean, in a way, they are sort of assuming there's a Muslim uh, uh, theocracy being imposed in Kashmir at that point, and which is hardly correct. Mm -hmm. And then again, if you go through different layers of architecture as they come up at a different period, from uh, late, uh, from mid, I would say mid 14th century to uh, 15th century, you see how layered this whole transformation of the society is. There are certain periods of tension. There are certain periods wherein you can also make a case for a force convergence as it is. But then that continuity of an older, more centric experience of Islam in Kashmir is something that comes up again and again, repeatedly. So the whole book revolves around that notion of what is happening in society. I mean, is religion uh, a sort of a, a phenomenon which all of a sudden abruptly changes the course of the history, of the course of the civilizational ethos uh, of Kashmir? No, there is a certain deeper layering and a deeper coloring that it adds to Kashmir, rather than changing everything. So. Again, if you see, because Kashmir is a rather very contested area even today in terms of its politics. So there are some people who see the start of Muslim rule as the start of our civilization. They they think that Kashmir as a civilization starts at 14th century. And before that, there is nothing there, which is rather very historically incorrect. And there are other people who sort of think that everything that was good in Kashmir was till the 14th century. And all of a sudden, everything bad that happened, happened after 14th century. So this whole idea, which is driven by sort of modern contemporary politics, and which most of it comes from the colonial period, Mm. is something that doesn't actually fit in with the architectural uh, experience of Kashmir.
0: No, I'm really, I mean, I think one of the very interesting moves in your book, and I felt this was... uh, I mean, it really because it, to reach this degree of um, um, you know sophistication and um, let's just say granularity, one obviously has to immerse oneself in the material for a very long time, which I think is so visible in your book. And the big point, which I think you're also mentioning, is that to go back to the 17th century moment and to look at the look at the idea of history from the perspective of the 17th century. And it's really a historiographical exercise where then you begin to, first of all, inhabit that 17th century present and then look actually into the past and see how that does not conform to the imagination of that 17th century present, right? That's a historical move. That's that's really a very, um, that requires a certain degree of rigor and imagination to be able to actually place oneself back in time as a present and then to actually show how that present itself is a kind of, uh, you know, uh, it, it is an, it's an imagined present, it's an imagined past coming from that. Present. So I think that's firstly, really wanted to, co- uh, you know, um, commend you for that kind of uh, uh, historiographical move. So I think for architectural historiography, which is an even less known sort of field in comparison to architectural history, I think that's a contribution, I think. The second thing that I, I just heard you mention, which I think, uh, which is the two interrelated points, which I uh, wish you could actually elaborate on a little more and perhaps also tell us something about maybe the early mosques, you know, in the time of Bulbul Shah, along the Jhelum waterfront. So the question really is, could you say something about um, this idea of continuity and syncretism, because that also is a huge part of the title of your book, and situated very specifically in, let's say, one or two key architectural forms? And maybe if we could ask you to do it alongside the Jhelum waterfront, Maybe that could be, I mean, it would ideally be good with
1: the visuals and visuals, but a a, a description might be helpful to start with. I mean, uh, let me sort of say it like this with uh, those of the audience who have already uh, the idea about the medieval architecture. I mean, we do read Percy Brown still, I assume, in our classes at a certain point. But you'll see that in Kashmir, we had a rather very strong uh, case for a monumentality in terms of the medieval stone temples. And if you see these temples, these are basically something that are neither a part of that uh, widely defined North Indian temple style or the South Indian as a certain amount of a regional identity. And speaking about that, these are monumental on a very high pedestal and then the whole idea is that they define your whole view. Uh, but once we come to the early Muslim buildings, and the, the Mosque of Finchina is one such book, one such uh, building, it's actually defined as the first mosque in Kashmir. You see, there is this conscious attempt at descaling the building as it is, and that is very important in terms of the visuals of the building. If the early part of Muslim rule was something which was of a conflict, then the whole idea would be to mon- monumentalize that dif- difference in terms of the religion, in terms of the material outpouring of that religion. But how we, we uh, you can see it, the mosque is small, I, I think it's around seven seven 7.7 meters or something around that, a square mm-hmm. small building, which just fits in at the side of your houses, which mm-hmm. are all along the riverfront. Mm-hmm. So there is no sort of a Visual uh, domination of the landscape, and Jhelum mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is the main. It was the main transportation spine of Kashmir as it is, till 19th century. So you can see, I mean, culturally how important it is that here is the, your major riverine uh, settlement, and mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of interspersed with many monuments. Stone mm. temples, etc., etc. But then here you're constructing your first mosque, and the whole attempt is to descale it, to make it more fit in with what was mm. happening in before. And mm. while you're trying to sort of do that fit in, it's more on a vernacular scale rather mm. than the monumental. So the mm.
0: uh,
1: incidents of the early Muslim architecture in Kashmir are from that uh, vernacular, uh, predominantly wooden architecture of the region, mm. and. Mm. Uh, that is somehow wherein you can see it and it happens again and again and again I mean, it's mm-hmm. repeated in another mosque which is in Pampur. It mm-hmm. continues way down till almost mid part of the 15th century when we have a mosque uh, known as uh, Madinsa. Again the whole uh, uh, iconography of that building is totally indebted to the uh, native Kashmiri temple. And uh, you can sort of then see and examine the sort of the motifs and the design, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, and compare it to the earlier examples. But generally, you can see that one, there is a conscious attempt at de-scaling the building. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the uh, visual imagery that you're uh, borrowing is totally derived from that native Kashmiri temple. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. it's from the vernacular rather than the monumental. So there is nothing sort of, a, uh, even the arch, it's a sort of a cusped arch. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Triphyl arch, tri-philo, which is there in yeah. the uh, temple. So it's not the pointed arch. So everything it's basically an attempt to fit in rather than to stand out. So that is the mm. interesting part about the whole uh, you know, material culture of the buildings that are there from, mm-hmm. I would assume, I would say, throughout the Muslim period mm-hmm. or the Sultanate period, 14th mm-hmm. to 15th century.
0: Hmm. No, I think in this um, sense of the descaling of mosques, right, I, mean, I think that's really amazing because you're also seeing. You know, I mean, this is also a question of sovereignty Insofar so far as you know, there is a royal uh, authority, which is probably patronizing the creation of certain structures. But at the same time, that power is relatively, it seems underplayed. So I think that's, that's an interesting tension, I think that you see early on in your book, where you're actually trying to, to look at these two different forces, right? They seem to be moving in opposite directions, like there is a royal authority. But it is actually, uh, as you're saying, descaled or underplayed in a way, and I think that's an, that's actually. I've not really read too many texts that are actually able to p- pick up these kinds of divergent tensions in architectural history, and I found that very very interesting. So um, that's something which that you should actually highlight. And then I thought also maybe we could ask you something about you know the arrival of Sufism, right? Uh, I mean, if you could say something about the emergence of the, um, the Sufi silsilas, and you know, and I think you uh, write and speak extensively about the Surahwardis, the pubravis the Lakshbandis. Could you say something about what, what happens when we actually start having these kankas built in Srinagar? Yeah.
1: So basically what is happening, Muslim rule gets established in Kashmir somewhere around 1320. Hmm. Then we have the first uh, Muslim dynasty, the Shamiris, who come around I think 1337 or 27, I think 1327. From 1327 till the period of around 1380, Kashmir is basically on the margins. So, I mean, if you uh, read the history, before the uh, coming of uh, Muslim rule, Kashmir had an invasion, the Mongol invasion from the north. So the whole land is in a very bad uh, condition. There is chaos political chaos there, and then there is again sufferings, the whole land is devastated because of this invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, then what happens relatively in these early 20, 30, 40 years of Muslim rule, the whole attempt of the Sha'amiri sultans is one to sort of perpetuate their dynasty, sort of make it more stable, mm-hmm. given the fact that uh, there are just a minority, both in mm-hmm. terms of the court, in terms of the nobility, as well as in terms of the actual population of the, of the region. But somewhere down around 1380, you can assume that there has been a certain amount of a rebuilding of the internal strengths of the Kashmiri Sultanate. Mm-hmm. And one of our king actually goes on, on a campaign of conquest. So mm-hmm. native Kashmiri historians would say that he conquered all the way up to Ghazni and Kabul mm-hmm. and Peshawar and Delhi. Mm-hmm. Maybe the actual physical conquests are the limited up till Punjab Peshawar and the borders of Delhi region. So this is around Ferocia to, uh, time. But what is important that he's the only historical Kashmiri king that we know after Lalith Aditya, mm. who actually expands the boundaries of Kashmir outside his uh, mountainous uh, mm. frontier. So mm. here is this king and he arrives on that wider geography of South Asia. And what is happening that this is a period when you're getting a steady arrival of Sufis from the Persianate world into South Asia, mostly Mm. for patronage, but again, you can also assume for a certain amount of religious piety and conviction, etc, etc. So it seems that this king and his conquests, Uh, is actually catching their eye. And then Mm. you see there is a steady trickle of these Sufis who actually come to Kashmir. Mm. You have to understand that going to Delhi uh, Sultanate is something different. I mean, it has the riches of the whole vast Mm. northern Mm. part of the uh, Indian plains. But then coming to Kashmir in the earlier period would make no sense. The past Mm. is so tough. And then what are you going to do there? But mm-hmm. here you have this first major Kashmiri conquest. And it is as if Kashmir has arrived on the map of South Asia. And it has attracted that attention of these uh, various groups of people who are basically fleeing from Timur's invasion, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And it is at precisely at this moment that we find the arrival of first and probably the only great trans- uh, regional transnational Sufi figure, Mir Sayyid Ali mm-hmm. Hamdani. He's mm-hmm. a sheikh. He's a sheikh of the kubriweya order in Iran.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So he arrives in Kashmir. His initial arrival and its immediate impact is rather limited because mm-hmm. though later on, again, we come back to the texts that are written in 17th century. So you're in 17th century and you're imagining this huge figure, a greater-than-life figure. So you, rather than him coming and leaving without doing much, you actually make him the focal point of Islamization of the uh, region. So you, uh, he's later on sort of, I would say, recast as the founder of Islam in Kashmir. But actually, historically, he came, stayed back for around a month or two, and then he left because he found that the local corrective was something that he could not change. So there is a reference in his text wherein he is questioning the king for his Uh, behavior in terms of how he's wearing his dress as this is not the Islamic way of wearing a dress. So you can see this is the first point of contact between the Persianate uh, influences that will come on, uh, keep on creeping in Kashmir and that native identity of Kashmiri Muslimness, which has already over the last period of 30 or 40 years been there in the region. So there is this notion of uh, wherein you are questioning everything that is Kashmiri as being not that Islamic. <laughs> then, over a period of time, the Kubravis become three. Yeah. So, um, gradually, you see that over a period of time, mostly in the uh, sort of uh, 15th century, you have a different Sufi salsala, the Kubravis, the Naqshbandis, the Suharbadis, and later on the Noorbaksis coming into Kashmir. Initially, they're more of an urban phenomenon. They're mm-hmm. very near to the culture, so you will find that most of the khankas that are that come up because of these Sufi silslas they are operating from this center of Deepa, which is the city of Srinagar, the capital city. Mm-hmm. They're quite near to the court and then uh, they are basically in, involved in that conversion process. Mm-hmm. They're also involved not only in the conversion pro- uh, process of uh, converting from Hinduism or Buddhism to Islam, but also. They're also responsible for introducing certain ideas and customs, which are a part of their cultural setup, the Mm. wider person well Mm. defined by this time. So they are questioning many things that are happening in Kashmir. Mm. So this whole, I mean, if you go through the uh, reading of the text, you find out there is a certain amount of cultural chauvinism associated with them at a certain point, if I can use that stronger word, Mm. but you do see that uh, there is a certain amount of creeping tension as there is a certain amount of reaction from the local native Muslims. Mm. And the best example of that is the Rishi order, which comes up Mm. somewhere uh, later down in the early part of the 15th century, where most of these Sufis are well established, they are well connected to the court. Mm. And then they also get a certain amount of a flip in their career because of the uh, rule of one of the sultan, Sultan Sekandar, who's actually involved in a certain amount of uh, idle breaking, temple breaking, uh, forcible conversion process. So that's also part of that history. But then what is happening that there is a reaction and the reaction is from the uh, native Kashmiri uh, uh, population, who in a way is actually questioning uh, the uh, this courtly, urban, elite, educated, very uh, sort of uh, textual based Islam, mm-hmm. which is being preached from these Sufi Khangas. Mm. So generally, this idea that Kh- uh, Sufis are, uh, I mean, there is a sort of a difference between the Sufis and the ulamas. It's not mm. always a reading, not always mm. a correct reading. So I would say that in the initial you know, part of the Sultanate rule, the Sufis are more a phenomenon or a vice for the orthodoxy. But gradually over the period and over the time, as we come down to 17th century, etc., etc., uh, they also become a part of that uh, local geography of Kashmir and many of the customs that they had initially sort of questioned become a part of their own uh, way of functioning. So in a way, they are sort of Kashmiri resized, if mm-hmm. I can use that word.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, Hakim, I think we're winding down towards the, lat- oh, towards the latter part of the latter part of our conversation. And I just wanted to have actually two quick questions, because I think you brought up um, something which I actually wanted to ask you. Um, who are the I and mean, what was their architecture like and how would you actually say this architecture is different from the architecture of the more urban Sufi orders, right? And that's the first question. Uh, secondarily, I sort of also wanted to ask you about, you know, water, this there's a lot of references to water in your writing. And could you say something about how you imagine this relationship between water and religious or commemorative architecture along the chain waterfront, right? Or, or even next to Haripar, but, or even the islands that you actually talk about. So I think these are the two questions, and maybe finally we might wind down with the last question of the moves So if that is something that you could tell us, we would be really happy. Yeah. Uh,
1: so regarding the rishis, uh, uh, we don't have a clue who they are, to be very honest, because they are coming not from the urban uh, textual-based court culture. They are coming from the local local population, the rural. But it's more or less a rural phenomenon coming from the uh, folk practices. They are initially a revolt against the orthodoxy that is being introduced. They are, uh, I mean, again, even the word rish, uh, rish, in Kashmiri we pronounce it as Rish, it's a continuation of the same word you would use for a Hindu Rishi, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. only difference that we have is that, uh, I mean, I think Ranjit Hoskote has uh, written about it in his book on Laldeh, that in the uh, uh, period, time period, preceding Muslim rule in Kashmir, Kashmiri Hindus did not have a tradition of what you call one press of sort of being celibate or sort of uh, renouncing the world as it is. Mm-hmm. They were a part of that uh, very uh, ritual based uh, mm-hmm. understanding of Hinduism. So it's possible that some of the traditions that were sort of reinterpreted by the Rishis were a part of that uh, Buddhist culture, which mm-hmm. was still lingering on in Kashmir in uh, uh, 14th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they doing basically? They're One, they're questioning the legitimacy of, of the Sufis Hmm. Secondly, you don't have a, a physical presence of any of the rishis in Srinagar city, which is Delhi. Hmm. Hmm. Here you have all the khankars, all the Sufis that are basically operating primarily from the city hmm. or else from major towns. I and mean, you find that these rishis are consciously avoiding the city as a test. And mm-hmm. there are some reports about a certain amount of tension between them mm-hmm. and the sultans
0: or the court. Would you, would, you, would, you, would you, I just want to ask you a quick question. I mean, I'm sorry if this is a, even a, a comparison at all, but in Delhi, for instance, we seem to have the exact opposite idea where the Sufis actually have a, 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 the exact opposite relationship with the city as being outside the city, right? With uh, outside Rahabana or even like in Kilokri, like the way in which the, the Sufi orders actually inhabit Delhi is to create. There is a sort of a seemingly, uh, seemingly uh, uh, antagonistic relationship between the Sultan and the, the Sufi saint. But here it seems the opposite in some ways. If I may, uh,
1: which is true. I mean, uh, it's true what you're saying in a sense. Even if you were, um, read the story of Nizamuddin Allia uh, yeah. as a relation, but then again, it's not. It would be a rather very generalized reading of history because Sufis yeah. were also part i mean you so have a, a like it's so, so it's yeah. something that is happening in between maybe it's dependent upon the personality of the ruling king and the presiding sufi sheikh and how you want the relation to be yeah. but in kashmir what you see uh, the Rishis are not a sufi order per se in terms of they uh, originate from kashmir itself okay. so okay. their whole language their whole understanding is based in Kashmir okay. they don't have an architecture per se i mean okay. at the point of the, where they start they don't have an architecture because what is happening there's most of these uh, rishis are dwelling in caves and uh, grottos, which are a part of pre-Muslim oh. culture. So oh. you would find the reference that this is a cave and I have sort of documented one of them in Tuppel, wherein you actually find a motif of a uh, Chotan on the wall. So it mm-hmm. is a pre-Muslim site, mm-hmm. which might mm-hmm. have been abandoned. But what the rishis are doing, they're sort of uh, 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 re-inculcating that, uh, uh, what do you call it, that feeling of reverence for these places, which sure. are basically not a part of the urban landscape, mostly mm-hmm. a part of the rural landscape. And they're sort of, uh, by they're doing this by uh, imposing their own personal association with these places. So this is something that happened over mm-hmm. a period of time, mostly uh, they're celibate, mostly mm-hmm. they're vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any reference wherein they marry and or they have, even have a system like a khanka of a mm-hmm. peer muridi. There's nothing Mm -hmm. like that happened. It's sort of self-initiation in the system and it continues way down till uh, Mughal period. Mm -hmm. So we have a reference from one of the Mughal invaders to Kashmir who sort of says, these rishis, they don't know anything, they're just pretending to be religious, they have no idea about religion. So that comes with that understanding of text and orthodoxy that comes from the wider Persianate world. So in more than a way, the Rashis are a continuation of the older quest and search, which mm. would have been there before coming of Islam. I mean, in a way, it's a critique of ritual, it's mm. it, their whole existence is a critique of rituals, which are uh, becoming increasingly a part of the khanka based culture. Mm. Because when you are operating in a Khanka, you're basically operating under the system of Pir Muridi, there are certain rituals established which you're following. Mm. So all in all, you would say that Rashis are... Uh, phenomenon which is against this whole uh, uh, khanda based culture. Regarding the importance of water, even today, I mean, I would say there are many places in Kashmir wherein, if you have a spring, mm. it is held to be sacred, mm. both mm. by Hindus and Muslims. Now, where does that whole notion of sacredness associated with the spring come in? Uh, it's a part of our pre-Muslim culture where Kashmiris are said to be Nag worshippers. So, Nag mm. is both the uh, snake, Who's also the presiding deity of the spring? So, there is that association of sacredness with springs. And I know personally that there are many areas wherein they don't go near a spring or even visit one of these uh, rishi, these uh, shrines, if you had a uh, sort of mutton or chicken. So, you basically made that decision that for a week I won't have anything uh, sort of uh, non vegetarian stuff, and only then I will visit these places. So, that association of sacredness, which is a part of uh, again, the landscape, the general landscape, the sacred landscape of Kashmir, water plays an important part. And it is sort of somewhere which uh, there is a carryover from uh, pre Muslim, mostly I would assume Hindu uh, rituals which were there related with water. And they get a certain amount of reference, reverence even in the Muslim material culture as it evolves over the period of time. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Hakim, I think maybe we've running really too close to the end of this, I just wanted you to say maybe a few words as you're closing about the Mughals, right? I mean, that's that's something which you talk about in a whole chapter and to briefly say something about, because I think there is this emphasis on uh, a larger pr- program of environing landscapes uh, that you see with the emergence of the Mughals and certain kinds of mosques and the way they're situated uh, along these platforms, I think in the chapter on the Mughals that you actually write. But at the same time, you're also saying somehow that they're actually relatively private experiences, that they're not necessarily, uh, you know, I, the, the kind of relationship that you actually see with the early between the early mosques and the riverfront possibly is not there necessarily when you're actually thinking of larger landscapes, right? So I just wanted you to say something about how you understand these relationships between landscapes and people and communities and water bodies and maybe drawing on the moguls, perhaps.
1: I mean, uh, to a large extent, it again depends upon how Mughals perceive, conceived of Kashmir.
0: Yeah,
1: um, We have a sort of a huge corpus of literature, in Persian literature, in terms of their Masnavis and Qasidas, which basically celebrate Kashmir. And se- mm-hmm. Kashmir is the Jannat that mm-hmm. apparently they are looking in for in the trains of South Asia. But then there is this rather very big question, which is, all these texts, all these verses, which are sort of extolling Kashmir as a Jannat or a heaven, they're totally devoid of any reference to the people of the land. So it is as if, in their imagination, the Mughals are depopulating this heavenly land from the people who are residing in it. And the best example is this city, which is Nagar Nagar. It is built on the other side. I mean, there is the actual historical Srinagar city. In between, you have the plain open land of the graveyards of the Malha, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And on the other side, behind the sort of these high rampant wall, you have the Mughal city. There is that physical separation between Mughals, Mughals as an entity, and the Kashmiris, and this is sort of a separation that happens throughout the course of history. So, even if there are certain examples of uh, the Mughal uh, patronage of public architectures, especially mosques, you find that they do it in a medium which is theirs. So they are totally ignoring the native tradition of building in wood or working with wood. It doesn't happen always. I mean, in Gujarat, they incorporated certain of the elements from the Gujarati architecture. And then we have the famous examples from uh, Bengal. But in Kashmir, they prefer to choose uh, to ignore local architectural experiences. And in a way, I would say the whole Mughal experience in Kashmir is about them and their pleasure and their paradise. It's between Delhi and enjoyment in Kashmir, rather the Delhi and the people of Kashmir. I would not be saying that they are not concerned about governance. Governance is a part of the Mughal administration. So, okay, if there are issues in the local, uh, uh, let's say there's a famine or there's something happening, they would be responding to that. But overall, the relation between Delhi and Srinagar is rather Delhi enjoying Srinagar as it is. And that is sort of, again, represented in these marvellous examples of architecture, whether these are mosques, whether these are gardens. They are not basically for the people of Kashmir. They are basically for Mughal enjoyment out there. So that is, I would say, in in a way, the totality of Delhi's early experience in Kashmir.
0: Well, Hakim, I think we probably run out of time. Um, But thank you so much for this interview. And I hope a lot of people read your book. I hope they actually, uh, you know, begin to see, I mean, there's a lot of comparisons also that you're drawing between various locations, you know, in in, um, Iran and in Kiva, for instance, and then even in Delhi Southern, right? And, And I think there's a lot of very rich material here for a lot of people embarking on perhaps a career or even thinking about something like architectural history in South Asia. And this is a really inspiring text. And thank you so much. For giving us some time thank you thank you, thank you for having me again nice seeing you again this yeah. is a long time thank you. take care you. hope you enjoyed this episode do not miss to like share and subscribe to our podcast available on all your favorite podcast apps